Great. Well, as, as Rob said, um, this morning we're, I'm going to be doing a double act with Claire, um, mainly because I felt God prompt me to ask her, and secondly, because I really like working with my wife. It's, uh, it's been a real, real joy this, uh, this week as we've been uh, prepping uh, in Wisley Gardens, no less. Highly recommended, particularly in the rain. Um, <laughs> spent a fortune on coffee. But this morning we are looking at dynamic faith. Dynamic faith, or the antidote to life's pressures. I think there is one common thread with all of us here this morning. Whatever your background, whether you're just visiting, whether you're a Christian or not, and that is each of us face pressure in our lives of one sort or another. Whether that's simply being in this time-squeezed, technology-driven, always-on culture where everybody seems to be able to get you whatever time of day, yes, we can turn our devices off, but do we? It just adds to that pressure of, of feeling like you have to be doing all the time. It's a very modern pressure. Perhaps you're feeling pressurized financially with the falling pound and rising inflation. Maybe you're feeling pressure with your finances. Maybe you're feeling pressure in your relationships. Maybe there's conflict at home or in the office. Maybe you're just feeling generally under attack. I remember uh, seeing a tweet this week. It's kind of humorous, but sadly often true. Someone said this, I stress about stress, even before there's stress to be stressed about. Then I stress about stressing over stress that I don't need to be stressed about. It's all very stressful. And I think, actually, we can end up tying ourselves up in knots with life's pressures, with anxiety. I think stress has become almost the hallmark of our culture. How are you doing? Oh, it's a bit, bit stressful at the moment. And the question, therefore, is not whether we face pressure, but where do we turn when we do? Where do we turn when we are facing the pressures of life? See, living pressurized lives is nothing new. The early church knew all about that very, very well. And yet they seem to have a very different approach to what we so often see modeled around us today. And if you've been with us over these last few weeks, you'll know we've been going through the book of Acts as part of our dynamic series, and things have been hotting up, haven't they? We had the Holy Spirit coming in power at Pentecost, thousands getting saved and added to the church as, as they were discovering for themselves what it meant, as Jesus described, to have rivers of living water flowing out from within them. They saw the reality of that at Pentecost. And, and again, as we looked at our river series, rivers have a tendency to impact and influence their landscape, their environment. And that was what was happening here right from the get-go. They were influencing their culture. And immediately, there was opposition Immediately, there was friction as this river was starting to flow. 
We saw the impact of the healing of the lame guy at the gate beautiful. As Peter and John were were arrested and dragged before the authorities. And as Kieran uh, served us so well last week, we looked at the incredible Holy Spirit-empowered boldness that Peter demonstrated before the authorities. And, And even through that, Thousands more get saved. I I find it funny. So often we we talk about the need to be seeker-sensitive, don't want to offend people. And yet here we see that even while the leaders are being arrested, it's not very seeker-sensitive, is it? You know, doing an altar call, I'm just going off to jail. If you want Jesus, come and, and, you know, thousands say, I'm in for that. I want that. Count me in. I think the question is, I'm going off on a tangent here, I'm doing another preach, sorry, I'll get back on track, but all I just want to say is, rather than thinking, are we being seeker sensitive, the question is, are we spirit filled? Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the most seeker sensitive person there is. Jesus said, "I, I came to seek and save the lost. The Holy Spirit carries on that mission through us, his church. So it's just, we see this amazing work of the Holy Spirit, even under persecution, even under pressure. Amazing work of the Holy Spirit. The church was growing incredibly. So we have 3,000 at Pentecost, another 2,000, the healing of the lame guy. That's just counting the guys. Add women and children to that. We're talking well over, well, at least 10,000 people. Church was getting big, but they were also left with a very, very big problem. They were banned from sharing the gospel. They were banned from talking about Jesus. You know, this is a life and death situation, very much the start of a growing persecution that as we read on through Acts over these next few weeks, we will see this persecution, this opposition developing. The church were under immense pressure. So how... Did the people respond? If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 23 to 31. So, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. I love this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed... 
the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I think the first thing that we can learn from this that really jumped out at me is that they looked to God first, not to the problem first. And that's something that we can learn to do when we're under pressure too, isn't it? When Peter and John returned, we see at the beginning of this passage, what's the people's response? They don't decide to organize a strategy meeting there and then and just think about what should we do now? Do you think it might be best if we lay low? Maybe we should move to a different area? No, they lift their eyes and their voices Godwards first. That's their instinctive response, is to reach for the source. They didn't allow fear to grip them. They turned to prayer. And here we have a wonderful recorded prayer that I think is a, is a great model for us. For when we face pressure, how do we respond? I was talking to somebody actually in the last week about how easy it is for us to fixate on our problem. We can ruminate about it all. We can think about all the possible solutions there could be. And then in our head think, maybe this is the right solution. And then we go to God and we take that as a prayer request. We say, I've got this problem. This is the way I think it's forward. Please do this for me, Lord. And then what happens when he doesn't answer in the way that we're expecting? We put ourselves under even more pressure by doing that, don't we? I hope I'm not the only one who does that because I've just admitted something that I think we all do at times. But here we see they focus on God's sovereignty first and foremost. They say, sovereign Lord. They declare who he is and they remind themselves of his faithfulness. What we see in their prayers are actually just praying back truth to God himself. That shows us that they know the scriptures. They know God's promises. They're not reminding God who he is. He doesn't need reminding, but they know they need reminding. They know that that's the way to feed their faith. So they are declaring who God is to themselves, to their own hearts. And they're reminding themselves that no circumstance ever takes God by surprise. He knew what was going to happen after he pulled out the Holy Spirit. He knew that Peter and John were going to be dragged off. And he's in control. We see in verse 25, they quote Psalm 2, where it says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They're reminding themselves there and reminding us that pressures and persecution is nothing new. Right the way through history, God's people have known that. Actually, if you go and read Psalm 2, it goes on to say that God actually laughs at man's attempts to conspire against him. They link Psalm 2 by then going on to talk about Jesus and say that actually even Herod and Pilate, what their plans were, what they did to Jesus, they could only do through what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. At the time... To the people all around, the cross probably looked like an absolute, total, utter defeat. And yet throughout all of history, that was God's plan. He knew exactly what was going on. He planned to allow his son to suffer on your behalf, on my behalf, but to raise him up from the dead and seat him 
in heaven's throne. He always has been and he always will be in control. So first and foremost, they feed their faith. They acknowledge God's total authority and his power over all things. So I guess my first question today is, do our prayers start like that? Is our starting point to trust in God? Or do we look to our problem first? In our prayers, can we honestly say, do we magnify God or do we magnify our problems? I know how easy it is to meditate more on our problems than it is onto God. And actually, what really struck me, I don't know if you've noticed, in the passage that Steve's read out, there are seven verses of a prayer, of their prayer. Five of those verses are acknowledging who God is and his sovereignty. And only two are then presenting their request to God. I find that incredibly challenging. And I know if I were to analyze my own prayers, I think the reverse may well be true. There's another challenge here. I think, how well do we know our Bibles? Do we know God's word well enough to be able to pray it back to him like they did, to be able to use his own words in our prayers? It's much easier to be able to say to God, I know I'm praying in your will when we're praying his words back to him. Jesus actually said in John 1, 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If my words remain in you, how much can we say that God's word is in here? How much too do we know of his character, about his names and what they reveal about him? In this passage, we see that they really were full of knowledge about their God. If we want dynamic faith like they've got, we've got to be feeding ourselves with those trees, haven't we? We need to remind ourselves daily that he's our provider, he's our deliverer, he's our source of everything, he's our saviour, he's our healer. But he also understands what we're going through. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. In their prayer, they acknowledged that the world was against Jesus. They conspired against him, didn't they? So was he tempted to find an easy way out? If you look at the passage which describes his experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that he gets to that point. God, if there's any other way, can this cup be taken away from me? He was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. That's because he knew the bigger picture. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His final words to God was, Yet not my will, but yours be done. So not only does that remind us that he understands when we're going through pressures, but it also means we shouldn't be surprised when we go through pressures as we're his followers. The early church understood that, and they also understood that they needed God's power in order to stand firm in the face of their persecution. Just take a moment to imagine what it must have been like. The church was growing rapidly, but what was it made up of? Hundreds of families just like ours. Some with small children they're running around looking after like we do. Some with elderly parents to look after. They were just ordinary people. What must have it been like to have seen their leaders being dragged off? How easy it could have been to say, oh, we just just need to back off now. The authorities don't like what we're doing. We probably just need to just 
keep it a bit lower, just get on with our lives for a bit and see how things pan out. But they don't do that, do they? They had the perspective of God's sovereignty. I think sometimes when we face pressure, for some reason we seem to think that possibly it's outside of God's understanding or his sovereignty. We seem to focus so much on our own problem that it's like we don't really feel like he gets it. But actually what we say and what we pray reflects what we believe. So are our prayers measuring up? challenging isn't it but they start by just focusing on God I love that rather than the problem let's first delight ourselves in the Lord as we were doing this morning let's just wherever we're at whatever we baggage we come with I'm going to delight myself in you I'm going to focus on your sovereignty they get this correct perspective I find that really challenging but once they do that Once they've got this correct perspective, once they've got through these five verses of of looking again at who God is, and they get finally to their request, what do they finally ask for? Now, oh God, bail us out. No. Do they ask to be protected even, or, or to escape from their difficulties? No, we don't even see that. They ask for more boldness. To keep on proclaiming God's word even in the face of these very real threats and very real difficulties. On top of that, they ask for miracles, signs, to point to Jesus. Stretch out your hand to heal, O Lord. In other words, the very same things that got Peter and John thrown into prison in the first place. They're asking for the same things. God Give us boldness to do that again. And I think we quickly see that the second key to their dynamic faith was the fact that they were willing to put mission first above their comfort or even their safety. They put God first. They put their mission first. Why? Because like Jesus, they understood the bigger picture. They understood their responsibility In the spread of the gospel, they understood that their part in seeing the nations one for Jesus, to see, to go and make all, to make disciples in all the world. Again, to go back to to our, our, our river vision, they understood that in this situation, in fact, they were not the victims, but actually God's resource. In this situation, I, I do, I believe God wants to remind people here this morning whatever you're going through, actually, you are not a victim, you are God's resource in that situation. Because what happens when we focus on God's identity and who He is, we start to understand greater our identity, who we are in Christ. We understand that we are His children. We understand that we are carriers of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We understand that he is sovereign and we carry his authority into every situation we go into. Therefore, we are not victims. We are God's resource. We are his ambassadors in that situation. That's what they, that's what they understood. 
They understood their identity. They understood the responsibility that God had given them in their time. And so in that context, they knew that asking God to smite their enemies wasn't the bigger picture answer. You know, we, we read about prayers like that in the Psalms, don't we? God, will you strike our enemies down? Heartfelt prayers, earnest prayers. But that wasn't the right way. That wasn't God's will. That wasn't the bigger picture answer. As we've been celebrating with communion this morning, Jesus had made the way for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. They understood that. They knew that. And therefore, what did they need? Well, we need boldness. God, this is scary. Give me courage. God, they're not going to believe unless they see your power at work. Stretch out your hand to heal. God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit intimidated here. Give me boldness. They understood a right perspective of God, and that in turn aligned correct priorities for them. A correct perspective produces correct priorities. And that is what we see through their prayer. Not to destroy their enemies, but to win them for Jesus. That's dynamic faith, isn't it? When you're really facing it. And I, I, we, we may not be facing life-threatening persecution in the same way that the early church did, or, or indeed a vast percentage of the church around the world today. Just think of places like North Korea, Syria, so many other places. But the truth is, wherever the gospel is faithfully preached and lived out, there will be opposition. And even in this culture, you know, we don't just live in a post-Christian society. We live in an anti, increasingly anti-Christian society. As Kieran was talking about last week, hostile to the ways of God. And we need to understand that our responsibility is to trust in God's sovereignty and in his power and pray in faith that we will overcome these pressures that we're facing, whatever they are. We're not victims. We are his resource. And we need his power in order to continue to share his love and his grace to those around us. Totally changes our priorities. You know, a very, very real example, very down-to-earth example, was when we were working out Emily's secondary school places. We realized we were in a black hole of the catchment areas of the local schools. Panic ensued. Oh, my word, we're going to end up taking her to Kent to school or somewhere. You know what? Sought God. Peace came. And actually, we understood, you know what? God's got a plan for Emily. It might not be the best school on paper, but you know what? He's got a bigger plan for her. He's, she is his resource wherever she goes. And, and, you know, whatever school she goes to, she's God's resource. As I say, we can have all these things like, oh, look at the tables, and this school had better value-added percentage or whatever they do nowadays than this one. God's got a plan for her. And peace comes as we seek him, and we get his perspective, and we get his priorities. Start of dynamic faith. 
And yet I know so often my default is to say, God, get me out of this situation. God, get rid of this pressure. Get rid of this, 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 this problem. Smite my enemies. I wonder how different things would be if we prayed more prayers like, God, give me power, not just protection. <laughs> God, give me boldness, not just a bailout. Give me courage in the face of opposition and hardship. We see his perspective rather than our own when we put him first. Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe, great commentator. I love, love his commentaries. He says this, True prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in us and through us. It's a challenge, isn't it? Rather than simply ask for a way out. The early church's deepest desire was to see Jesus glorified, to see his name proclaimed, to see people come and know him through the preaching of the word and through demonstrations of power, signs and wonders pointing to Jesus. That's what our motivation should be. You know, we don't just ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to make us feel better in the moment but actually for God's will to be accomplished through us. It's challenging. So what was the outcome of their prayer? I love prayer meetings like this. Have you ever been in one? The room shakes. Tangible sense of God's presence. And they are filled again with the Holy Spirit and immediately start speaking the word of God boldly. God, boldly sorry. God answers pretty immediately, doesn't he? Pretty immediately. Why? Because they were praying in line with his will. They were praying God's words back to him, as Claire was saying. It sounds like, like another Pentecost. But God was just filling them afresh again. Just reminding them again that I am still with you. We read a lot about earthquakes in the Bible signifying the presence of God. You know, just like Joshua in the Old Testament, God said, be bold and courageous. Why? Because I am with you. Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Don't worry, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And here he was again, I'm still with you. This fresh sense of the presence of God. This was where their courage and boldness was rooted. It was rooted in the fact that God is with us. In church today, we can be bold, we can be confident. Why? Because God is with us by his spirit. We need this sense of the fresh presence of God. We need to keep pursuing the presence of God. That's where our boldness and our courage is rooted. There's this fresh, fresh power as well. Fresh power for the moment they're in now, for the difficulties they are facing now. Did you know there is fresh power for you this morning for the difficulties you are facing now? God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning we need to wake up and say, God, fill me afresh with your spirit for what I need to face and what I'm going to face now because you know what, I'm, what I need. You know what I'm going to face. Certainly a good reason to keep asking for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. You know, if the early disciples needed it, then surely we do too. 
There's also another outcome, fresh presence, fresh power. Another outcome of this dynamic, faith-filled prayer. Along with the renewed power and the boldness that they felt, being filled with the Holy Spirit also gave them a deeper unity with one another. I'm just going to read verse 32 to 35. And this is just an incredible picture of unity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I don't think that it's a coincidence that these verses on the believers sharing all their possessions and just caring and loving one another deeply come straight after their corporate prayer because prayer and unity should go hand in hand. Jesus himself prayed for complete unity amongst the believers in John 17, 23. And he also explained to his disciples that would be the way that the world would know that they are his through if you love one another, John 13, 35. So another outworking of their dynamic faith was not only a boldness to witness, but grace to care for one another. And that actually is just as powerful a witness to those around them. So I want us to look now at what impact does our dynamic faith have on our church family? We see such a sense of them being in it together in this passage. In the face of the pressures of persecution, they've come together unified in a sense of purpose and proclamation. We see they don't stop proclaiming who Jesus was. But they also decided amongst themselves to share all their possessions to eliminate the possibility that there would be any poverty amongst them in such an intense time of pressure. I think that actually reveals such Holy Spirit-fueled generosity, doesn't it? So I just want you to think for a moment, why do you come to church? Is it to worship with like-minded people? Is it to be spiritually fed? Is it to be encouraged so that you can then go out and face another week of your everyday life, whatever it is that you are doing and whatever pressures you are facing? All of those things are good things, but they're not the whole picture. Part of the reason that we come together is to become a community, to find that deep friendship based on God's love and based on our faith. If you would answer me and say, I do share my life closely with others in the church, and that's something that we would say we think life groups can help facilitate, but if you do answer by saying that, then can I ask you, are you honest about when you face difficulties? Do you admit when you're struggling? Do you ask people for prayer? Do you accept any practical offers of help when they're given to you? Or do you find any or all of those things difficult? And on the other side, do you make an effort to support those that are around you? Particularly if you see that they're under pressure, 
Do you take the time just to sit and listen to them? Do you pray for them? And do you actually have the faith to believe that you could be the answer to their prayers? I think prayer is just such an incredible mystery. God has invited us to partner with him. And he allows us to influence things through our prayers, which is mind-blowing, isn't it? But Jesus actually tells us in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gives us that authority, but he also charges us with the role of being his hands and his feet on this earth. So like the early disciples, we are to stand firm in the midst of whatever pressures that we are facing in our lives individually at this moment, but we're also to support one another out of the love and the care that we have found in Jesus Christ. So, we pray in faith, knowing that we're praying to a sovereign, all-powerful God. But then we need to act in faith, understanding the responsibility that we have been given, both for the gospel and, as Claire has explained, for one another. We have a responsibility for one another as well. The early church knew, to use uh, C.S. Lewis's words, that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And as a church, as God's people, they refuse to be shaped by intimidation or fear or by the prevailing culture, they refused to allow themselves to settle where they were at. They were determined that it was going to be God's promises and God's call on their lives that would, shoot, that would shape them. That they were rooted completely in the will of God. Their confidence was rooted in knowing him personally. Again, that sense of personal invitation to delight yourself in the Lord. Come and connect to the source through worship, through prayer, through straightforward, simple communion with him. Knowing his presence. That's what produces dynamic faith in each of us. I'd like to give us time to respond here. If the band could come up. Um, I had a friend, I still do actually, when I, was, when I was younger, still friends, but I used to describe him as annoyingly optimistic. I don't know if you have any friends like that, annoyingly optimistic, whereas I would look at um, problems from every angle and try and work out the solution, he would have this phrase, very annoyingly simple phrase, but God. But God. And I know some of the pressures you guys are facing. I don't know all of them by any stretch of the imagination. But I really feel this morning that God wants us to pray for that same but God attitude that my friend still has, actually. 
I'm pleased to say. You know, I'm facing this issue or this disappointment or this difficulty, but God is able. (laughs) But God is for me. But God is with me. But God is still good. But God is still my healer. But God is still my strength. He is still my peace. God is still at work. But God. Again, it's just that sense that you are not a victim, but you're God's resource in this situation. 